This is Doug. Jacob. And this is David. And you're listening to Best Worst Podcast. Number 31. Number 31. Um, David is David Larson, who joined us last year around this time for the wrap-up of the uh, New Zealand International Film Festival. And uh, we're back for another round. And uh, how are you surviving? Well, let me just say that as our fourth chair, I have brought with me the festival flu because I, f- I feel that our listeners, your listeners, um, should have the chance to know what 17 Days of Film Festival can do to people. <laughs> and, and, and what exactly do you think it did to you? I mean, is part of that because you're writing the whole time? I mean, David's had um, six very in-depth blogs in uh, Metro Mag over that uh, time covering how many movies? I ended up seeing... 55 films, which is my personal maximum, and I, I say that with a little bit of shame because the whole concept of personal maximum gets competitive and ridiculous, but I explicitly went into this film festival thinking, what is the largest number of films that I can see and still enjoy? Let's find out. And <laughs> there isn't really a ceiling to the number of films I can keep watching and enjoying, but there's definitely a point at which I lose the ability to enjoy certain types of film that I would enjoy if I saw them in a less stressed out mode. And that, right. was, that was happening by the end of the festival. Plus I caught a cold and someone stole my bike. And it was, it was a saga. It was a, grand, <laughs> it was a grand saga. You went to 55 films. Um, what was your largest films in a day run? Oh, it was five. Five, oh yeah, yeah. that's a long, that's how much I've done. Can you fit six? I think uh, they, very rarely. On given days, yeah. You can sometimes do six. They used to do... I. Th- I think they used to do 11pm films. Yeah, there was. I got one 10.30 this year, I think. I, I sat down next to someone. I had some great conversations with people before films started. I sat down next to someone in the, in the front row at Sky City for oh, something yeah. or other. And she was complaining to me that you can't do six films in a day anymore. They don't, they don't do proper late night screenings. It's just, it's, it's just, it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a busy person. I can only fit so many in. And yeah. it's, it's, it's very inconvenient. <laughs> but you're five in a day. I mean, that's, yeah, yeah. that's enough. It starts getting surreal when you're in the same cinema with like four in a row. <laughs> well, actually, my, my biggest day, I saw three films. Only three films. Yeah. But they, they were so intense and so good. And there was so little time between them that it was, I wouldn't have missed any of them. The only way I could see all of them was to see them all in that one day. So that was great. But going from this very absorbing, realist, Japanese domestic drama. Five hours of it, right? It was five hours long. Oh, so it was Japanese. We're talking about Happy Hour. Yeah, yeah. Going from Happy Hour, 30 minute pause during which I grabbed dinner, walked straight into The Daughter, which is... This incredibly intense. Oh, the Australian. Chekhovian, tra- yeah. Ibsenian. Is it Chekhov or Ibsen that it's based on? It's a tragedy. Um, <laughs> I haven't seen it. So. It's very structured, it's very formal, and it's very intense and kind of grabs you by the throat and shakes you. And then, 20 minutes after the end of that, I was watching A Dragon Arrives, which. <laughs> Is the most. <laughs> well, to be fair, I mean, um, Jacob wrote about uh, Dragon Arrives for Panagraph Punch, and um, I haven't got to see it, but from everything I've heard, there's not really any film at the festival that it would have paired naturally with. <laughs> no, it, it's, it's a fantastic blend, that film, of yeah. um, kind of film noirish um, conspiracy theory meets true crime documentary. <laughs> when, the, when the director turns up, you were like, Who's this guy? Oh, it's the director. Yeah. And his family. And suddenly we're switched Wait, in to the film. flat documentary. Yeah, in the film. Like, you're watching this weird film noir thing set in the 60s, and all of a sudden, you're in current day, flat-style cinematography, like a marked change, and it's the fact the, cinem- the director and his family talking about um, having gone through his father, who was a notable filmmaker, um, through his closet, and having found 
um, some old tapes and they haven't put them on and, yeah, and so pretending that this is some real thing from their a, family life. So it's a found footage film <laughs> yeah. um, with, <laughs> with, with supernatural elements. Um, and it's very hard to figure out yeah. whether or not, unless you're very familiar with um, Iranian domestic politics, yeah. whether any of these things actually happened. happened yeah. None of them did. But right. quite a few of them could well have done. Yeah, and <laughs> real people in there. And then it had several like specific film noir markers, but it was like sun-baked lurid bright colours against dusty background <laughs> yeah. like, oh, just, the anti-film noir film noir <laughs> such fantastic images yeah this, that car man the, oh the car my yeah. god just, yeah. it's a bright yellowy orange Chevy Impala it just, driving you, through the desert just oh. to look at it is to desire it yeah and but then they're driving through the desert and they arrive at this large ruined ship yeah. In the middle of a graveyard, in the middle of a desert canyon. Yeah, surrounded by rocks. And against which backdrop, subsequently in the film, there's this moment where these bright, bright day glow balloons are released. Helium <laughs> balloons. That yeah. It's, I think, the single most striking image, or one of them, that I yeah. took away from the festival. And, as you say, it's very hard to make head or tail of it. So, to bring it back to where we started... Imagine that that's the third of three equally intense films that you see in one day. Imagine what that does to your recollection of the first one. (laughs) So yeah, so you've had a uh, 17 of those days in a row in various forms and Yeah, it was fantastic. It was absolutely fantastic. If you could have got on a plane on Monday and gone to Wellington for another week and fill in the gaps of all the things that you heard about and had FOMO about, would you have? Well, it's not hypothetical because our friend Steve Austin um, did exactly yeah. that with Melbourne. On the last yeah, day of the festival, he jumped yeah. a plane to two weeks of the Melbourne Film Festival, which is larger than yeah. Auckland and has more films. And he saw most of the things that I had raved to him about that he had missed in Auckland, plus a whole heap of other things. And I do not know how he's saying, no, I couldn't have done that. Well, I, to be fair, he, was, he didn't see as many things as you did and was working a normal job rather than that and um, he's I think he's been seeing two to three things a day and I don't think it was writing this year yeah, yeah which... so that makes a huge difference because you actually have to process it and yeah then, uh, that's true in terms of processing I was working harder during the festival but let's just remember that he was holding down a day job <laughs> Touché. Touché. And, and what was your experience like how many did you get to in the end um, I um, ran it out at uh, 35 um, right. which was far more than I expected in fact this side of um, having children, I think it's the largest number that I've got to. So, woo, things are getting... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, very exciting for me um, in that respect. And, uh, and it, was, it was a good, hard writing stint for me. Um, but I got a lot of mine done early. And so right. I got... To the... Was that 35 during the festival or 35 all up? All up. Oh, yeah. okay. Um, so I a few preview sort of things. Yeah. Um, but most, mostly during the festival. Um, okay. I got a lot of my work done by the almost uh, maybe two or three days before the end of the first week, and then I had an entire week where I was just doing some capsules at the end of that. And so I had a week where I wasn't writing; I was just going seeing films. And I mean, I, I did have to write a little bit here and there, but it was it was quite refreshing. Like in previous years, I've just gone hard with the writing and the viewing at the same time, and like you know, it gets to you. But I found like I had the space of like four or five days where I just chilled and watched films. Right. <laughs> It was, it was really nice. Oh, that's good. That's and, really and I would come home at night and then I'd go, well, maybe I'll watch something else. <laughs> <laughs> of course you would. Um, comparatively to other years, what did you, did you guys notice anything different about this year in particular? Um, 
I mean, I should say I only made the second week because I was on honeymoon, so I only got to 13 films, eight of which were in the last week. I didn't want to mention that lack, uh, of, lack of seeming commitment there. From yeah, the it was... Yeah, like, <laughs> well, and coming back and then having jet lag and like being like, I can't actually make it to the six o'clock showing of Chimes at Midnight because I know that my eyes will be closed and I will be snoring by 8 p.m. no matter where I am. <laughs> and I'd rather not do that to an audience yeah. in the Civic. It's a little bit pathetic, Doug. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's... it's it's the second year it's happened and hopefully it won't happen Can I just again. cut in a snoring? I was sat beside a chap um, and, and I probably should have moved earlier but I decided not to who was um, who snored his way through the greasy strangler an <laughs> elderly looking well not elderly but you know middle aged business fellow I th- he didn't look like the target audience particularly um, but then he was kind of uh, chucking away and then I heard this <laughs> and I was like what the <laughs> and it was yeah. really odd I, d- I did not see The Greasy Strangler but from everything I've heard a very implausible film for that to occur in yeah <laughs> it was really weird and occasionally it would get loud and raucous and he'd wake up <laughs> and then again you know five minutes later he'd be snoring <laughs> yeah I blush to say this but I can almost relate there were three separate occasions where I almost fell asleep in my last film of the day. In the middle of the festival, there was a media screening for um, Jason Bourne, which from everything I've since heard, I'm now quite pleased that I didn't go to, but at the time I really wanted to see it. And I just could not. I just had to go home and get an early night because Mm. I'd nearly fallen asleep in the film immediately before it. I drifted off during uh, Les Dimons. um, Oh, wow. uh, Just just little bits here and there, just kind of a... Oh, yeah, my eyes are closed. Maybe I should think about opening them soon. Oh, yeah, there we are. Yeah. Kind of. So I don't think I missed too much. But, no, um, and that, and, it, and it was a film on... that was attuned to drifting to some extent, I think. Oh, somewhat. But I, um, I found that a very vivid and edge-of-seat film. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I take oh, right. this as a comment on how jet-lagged you were rather than yeah. on the film. Oh, I, I, and I wasn't saying that as a critique of the film. No, no, no. Yeah. I mean, yeah. some, one of the films that I almost fell asleep in was, in fact, in the end, it was um, my number one pick, I think. Right. Um, so, it's, yeah, no comment on the films at all. It's just. Some, and what was that number one pick? Uh, Sierra Nevada. Right. And that was your number one pick as well? No, my, no? Num- my um, number two. Oh, okay. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic piece yeah. of filmmaking. Yeah. That will almost certainly never come back. Yeah. And again, I'm kicking myself for it, but again, yeah. the only chance was the Sunday night I got back off a plane at 7 a.m. Yeah. and a 6.45 p.m. screening that went for three hours of Romanian people in a room uh, yeah. talking to each other or yelling at each other and <laughs> engaging in conspiracy theories did not say cinematic adrenaline. <laughs> that, was, that was very well judged, but you're also quite correct that it will never come back. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, yeah, the jet lag thing, you can't, you just can't beat that. Um, but but for me, I, I, I went into that wondering, because I had another long one before that, I think, um, and I went into it wondering, how am I going to cope? Am I going to need to sort of load up on the chocolate? But honestly, <laughs> I was engaged the entire time. I was really surprised. I was, I didn't find it dragged at all. It was so okay. rich and yeah. and everything was like... Did you, did you find that first hour at all hard work? No, no. I, I just... It was, it was fantastic. You, it was. It was the, the first hour was when I was really having to work to keep my eyes open, and there was so much going on, so yeah. interesting. Yeah. And, and, and it's a really, really strong opening in all sorts of ways. But it also, I hadn't figured out who the people were yet. I yeah. wasn't hooked on their individual stories, and yeah. was as we were walking in, um, my son and I bumped into Bill Goldstone, and he's a very nice, chatty person. 
um, this is the director of the festival. How are you going? And you, you look quite tired. And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm very tired, but Sierra Nevada will wake me up. And he said, oh, yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's, he's notorious for not holding his uh, tongue answered. <laughs> oh, no, he, he, he made it clear that he liked the film a lot. Ah, yes. Just that he didn't imagine the amount of subtitle reading I was about to have to do mm-hmm. was going to be easy on tired eyes, and he was absolutely right. I, do you find that in general to be a problem? It's interesting to me how different people... Like, I never have a problem reading subtitles or keeping up with them, but I know for some people that can be really... A, showstopper as the uh, no, not, festival gets on or not normally. just generally this is a conversation I've more often had with people in connection with graphic novels I, oh, yeah. pictures and text just kind of merge in my brain quite seamlessly but right. but for this one yeah there was, there was enough going on in the pictures and the subtitles were long enough because they just the people just talk 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 in Romanian and yeah you're you're reading something not that far from a novella, I would say, yeah. at the same time as you're taking this thing in. So, yeah, it's it's demanding. I'm interested in this experience of um, felt time versus real time. Yeah. Because, um, you know, what you're saying about Sierra Nevada is that, yeah, it says three hours on the tin, and yet it goes quite quickly. And we've yeah. all had this ex- the reverse experience of seeing the 90-minute film that felt like it was yeah. three hours. And, um, and we, you know, there's a few films that all of us have seen, and so one that... Maybe we can start with this um, Tony Erdman, which I think put a few people off with its 162-minute runtime. Uh, and in lived experience for me, it felt shorter than a lot of two-hour films. So German comedy by director Marin Ade. Yeah. Um, calling it a comedy is interesting because the people who sat next to me afterwards, who laughed almost as much as I did, I laughed a couple times so hard I rolled back and forth in my seat, which happens to me about once every three years, and mm. I treasure those moments. Um, and left quite often, I felt like, but at the end they're like, oh, the booklet sold that as a comedy, and I'm not sure it's a comedy, and, you know, it's not, it's, and I did feel like it has so much going on in it, you know, it's about contemporary Romanian politics and mm. structures of capital, yeah. and, um, of course, the, those things are as much a part of it, and the analysis of what that means as the father-daughter comedy relationship that's ostensibly the heart of the film uh, and that I and that gives uh, the weight to following this sh- sort of shaggy dog, kind of ambling but quite fun story as it builds to a drop dead set piece that could have ended a lesser movie that is then just a prelude. Um, I'm talking about the, I'm talking yeah. about the singing scene here. Yeah. It's just yeah. a prelude to set up a much crazier set piece yeah. that um, is, it was probably my scene of the festival um, and is just so cannily played because you never quite know where you're sitting relative to the protagonist's intentions in the birthday party scene, which I don't want to yeah, yeah. give yeah. the remotest spoilers for. That's very nicely put though. And that has something to do with my response to the film, which I did not enjoy as much as I think both of you did. Yeah, yeah. I want to be clear that I liked it a lot, um, but I felt myself at a distance from it for most of its running time. Mm-hmm. I think I would agree that, that that was my scene of the festival. Just such a fantastic scene. So, I mean, I absolutely loved that moment. There were a couple of others that were equally strong, yeah. um, and I didn't, I didn't feel that it dragged. But something... I almost want to use the phrase comedy of embarrassment. Yeah, yeah. There's, 
an element of discomfort to not quite knowing the intentions of one of the characters um, vis-a-vis all the others whom he's constantly putting in these quite discomforting situations. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting because the, I mean, the, the phrase that um, is often used in the synop- official synopsis is, you know, that a father sees that his daughter isn't enjoying life, so he decides to play some jokes to brighten her life. And, and <laughs> he makes her miserable. But, but, but also, like, I, I don't think that uh, the motivation wasn't really that clear on screen to me. And I don't no. know if that was, um, if that's something that the director has been like, oh, that's the motivation, and it somehow didn't quite translate to screen no, or I, I, I suspect like, they're trying to trying to encapsulate something that has much grander aims in a very simplified yeah it um, sounds like statement. an IMDb synopsis yeah. that like it's a fantastic comedy first and foremost that's the kind of the medium that it uses to get its thing across I, I would say the um the father-daughter relationship for me wasn't strictly comedic like no it's the, very the, the film was comedic, it's very grounded in reality yeah, yeah. there were three yeah. films well there are pl- lots of really good family drama in this in this festival. Um, Sierra Nevada, first and foremost, Tony Erdman being fantastic in that respect, and also um, the second segment of um, Certain Women, which a lot of people okay. didn't like, which I actually really connected with, which had this kind of strained family relationship between yeah. um, Michelle Williams' character and her... Um, John Grosh, was it? Or no? I haven't seen it. Um, Couldn't tell you. Husband and daughter, and then that dynamic of uh, family that's kind of at a strained place, and there's uh, two people siding against one of the others. And, but it was very nicely and, and, and very realistically portrayed. Um, and Tony Edmund, I think, was the same. There's something, a, a lot in there about how families often operate. Yeah. How there's this, yeah. this sense of connection that you just, you can't get rid of. Well, some people do, but for the most part, you can't get rid of it. It's innate. It's blood. But it doesn't necessarily mean you're socially close or you know how to relate or respond to people. And I think that's a very nice, realistic thing that isn't always shown. The people mm. often either shown at, at great odds, arguing like cats and dogs, or um, very close. Um, but somewhere in between is a little difficult, more difficult to get to, and I think this film got to it so well, yeah. as well as being really funny, and then as well as naturally sewing in that politi- geopolitical and sociopolitical economic... Which stuff that was seen around the edge of the entire film. Which does, as Doug was saying, I think does feed into the meat of that synopsis because mm. there is an extent to which the daughter is, um, she's a cog in this very unfriendly machine. Mm. She's mm. being crunched by it in the way women in particular often are in corporate life. I mm. gather never having lived corporate life. Um, but you, or, you, or a woman's life. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. I, I've seen woman's life. <laughs> Just going to dial this back and dig myself out of this hole. <laughs> That's why we spend these podcasts too. <laughs> and her father, although he seems legitimately unhappy for a lot of the time that he spends with her, there's, there's a point in the film where she complains to a friend that he's pretending that he's doing all of this for her, but he's really just sad because his dog's just died and he's trying to distract himself, which actually does seem to be true. But it also does seem to be true that he's lived a life somewhat organised around personal interaction while she's Mm. working to a different set of values. So at at the least, you could say there's a fundamental values clash there and he's Mm. trying to bridge that gap. And I think... I was thinking about uh, what you said before about the comedy comedy of awkwardness, and I think about things like Curb Your Enthusiasm, which actually just make my skin crawl Same. with discomfort. And I think what sets this film apart from Curb Your Enthusiasm is Curb Your Enthusiasm is very much the Rube Goldberg mousetrap thing, where you have um, you know Larry leave his 
bowling shoes someplace at the start, and then you say, okay, what's the worst thing that he could do? And then you watch the mechanism that you know will eventually unfurl if you operate under the assumption that everybody's behaving their worst possible selves. Yeah. And this film has a much more complicated mm. set of gears and kind of in some ways comes to something almost unknowable yeah. In, yeah. in what's at the center of that yeah, so family relationship that's that it's irreducible in a way that something like you yep. know those comedies of embarrassment are about clearly delineating you know this is who a person is this is who a person is that's how they're going to be against each other and isn't it funny when you know you put a bigot and a black person in a yeah. room or whatever um yeah as you say both these characters are so much harder to shrink down um the other thing i loved about was the physicality yeah. of the lead actors you know you have um, Sandra Huller, who just kind of like keeps kind of tipping from, it's like she has too high of a center of gravity and it keeps swaying in strange ways as she moves. And I then, love that scene of yeah. her lying on the couch in that hotel room. Mm. That was fant- like where she just lounges back and it's so kind of unladylike. It's not the way that people normally sit, but it's the way that you kind of just crash out sometimes <laughs> at home. It was fantastic. I love that. Yeah. It was so- yeah. That's, that's yeah. very nicely observed. Yeah, it's, it's it's really interesting me to me the extent to which I'm sitting here nodding, thinking, "Oh yes, that's that's true." That's gosh, I hadn't thought of that. That's that's a very good point. Still didn't like the film that much. <laughs> well, I had the similar experience with her previous film, Everyone Else, which um, I I saw what people liked about it. I just didn't want to spend a moment with those characters. Oh, yeah. I, and I saw that I saw that it was well observed. Yeah. I saw that it this was This wasn't even that. I liked these characters. Uh, well, I I was interested <laughs> in these characters. Yeah. Like I, is a strange word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it didn't I was watching it from a distance. Sometimes you're completely in the film. There were a number of films that I saw at this festival where I was just on board, inside, every little beat. We're going to talk about Personal Shopper at some yeah. stage. Now, there's a film with some unlovely characters and some interesting sociological observations to make in the process of doing other stuff. Yeah. Um, but I, every every tick of its clock, I was just moving with. Uh-huh. Well, why don't we talk about Personal Shopper now, since we've kind of covered our yeah. Tony Erdman feelings. Um, you loved it. I completely loved it. It's um now I don't know how to say his name. Olivia Assayas, is that right? Olivia Assayas, yeah. Works for us. Good, good, we'll go with that. <laughs> it's, as good, it's as good as we ever pronounce names. We're on the authorities. Yes, well, <laughs> Benone Auteur Assayas. Yeah. His name may be Assaya, for all I know. Um, he directed Clouds of Sils Maria, which was one of my absolute favourite films of yeah, last, last year. The last festival that came out in 2014. Which is Germaine. Um, because I had originally thought it was a 2015 film and now he's back again with one of the same stars yeah. in 2016 with a new film. It's actually, there's a two-year interval there. My fondly imagined future in which the two of them produce a film a year from now till forever is presumably not going to happen. Um, <laughs> but very, very interesting if you loved Clouds of Sils Maria, seeing yeah. him and Kristen Stewart, Stewart make another film together in which, in which she is again kind of a personal assistant to a Euro celebrity yeah. um, moving through some of the tourist hotspots of Europe. Um, in many other ways, it's a very different film, but structurally somewhat similar. So yeah. it's, it's like they've said, well, okay, we've done this. Let's, let's modulate slightly and, and do this somewhat related thing. And, and switching her into a firmly lead role, whereas before she was um, definitely co-lead with Juliette Binoche. Co-lead stroke supporting even, yeah. yeah. It was, and that was an interesting thing yeah. about that film to begin with, the, the, exact, 
the exact weighting of their relationships. Yeah. Um, it was kind of quite late in the film that, that I started to think, wait a moment, this is as much about her, yeah. about Kristen Stewart's character, as, as about Binoche's one. Um, but of course we're working in a very different genre with personal shopping, yeah. right? I haven't seen Sils Maria, but... Uh. That is absolutely true and also problematic because I'm going to say now that anybody who wants to see this film or is likely to see this film should see it with as little knowledge as possible. And that includes knowledge of the genre stroke genres that it's playing with because it's I really disagree, actually. Oh, That's, really? Yes. Um, okay, well, we're going to talk about this. <laughs> so... Spoilers ahead. Go ahead, Doug. Yeah. Um, I think that... I mean, Assayas is a guy that I've watched on and off for a while, and he has a couple different modes, and he does these lovely observational pieces like Summer Hours or um, After May or something in the air, which is his semi-autobiographical piece about the 69. And then um, and then he has other like kind of more genre pieces like Demon Lover, um, which is this crazy... It's it's sort of like the character from L getting brought into an international conspiracy and poisoning people on a plane and stuff instead of which would have been uh, so much more interesting. But we'll get to that. <laughs> oh wow, we'll have an interesting discussion about that. <laughs> um, I felt that there were people that showed up to Personal Shopper not recognizing that it was a genre film and a, a ghost story in particular. And yeah. it is very clearly from the first scene. If you're going expecting a story about a personal shopper and kind of a finely observed detail about that life. And then within and 30 then seconds, you've got a CGI ghost. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. And, and I, I, I could tell there were some people around me who were very thrown by it in that way that were people there? who don't look beyond kind of the. Oh, there's this drama with that lovely, you know, Daniel Artel from <laughs> Dinner Game and Juliet Binoche from Chocolat. Let's go see this opening night film. What is it called? Hidden? Yes. This Michael Haneke guy. He must be a lovely <laughs> chap to cast those two people. <laughs> and you show up and then you come out traumatized. And, and, and I don't think, um, well, Personal Shopper, Shopper is actually kind of, if you're on its wavelength, I know Steve, our friend Steve, who we discussed, was really shaken by it. And I think it's, if you... Shaken in a good way. Yeah, if you, yeah, his, I think it was his favorite film of the festival. But also, if you um, don't surrender to it, then it's all a bit hokey. I know James Robbins was really down on... Oh, he, he had this blog post in which he described <laughs> one of the scenes in extended detail as consisting of, she reads a text, she looks away, she reads a text... She sends a text. She looks away. My God, she's still texting. Am I alive? Have I died in the cinema? She, she's still texting. There's more texting going on. He, he did not appreciate that scene or the film as a whole. Whereas during that scene in particular, I was on the edge of my seat because that I was, was so interested in the relationship between her and the stranger, the probable stalker who is sending these texts. And every text builds more information into what you know about them, what yeah. she knows, what you know that she doesn't know, what you suspect, etc., yeah. etc. Et well, and also because there's this whole ghost story aspect to it, whether yeah. there's something more at play there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. They, he plays into that. Someone, I can't remember who sent out, um, said that, that at the screening they were at, one of the more amusing things they witnessed was um, someone near them was um, texting on their phone. <laughs> <laughs> during the texting yeah, yeah, scene. Yeah, during, during the scene. And then looked up to see Kristen Stewart on her phone texting, and then went... <laughs> weird kind of shifty-eyed look, and, and, and realised a couple of people were looking at... <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I think. I mean, so there is that whole side of the film, and then there is this other side of the film that um, one of the things I kept thinking about um, was just its its interest in texture from art mm. to yes. clothing. Both, I mean, you know, as we've mentioned, Kristen Stewart's a personal shopper for this. A celebrity of unspecified... Kira? 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 Uh, yeah. Yeah, Kira, yes. Because yeah. I thought maybe it was a Kira Knightley parody, and then you see her, and it's clearly not. Yeah. But, and it's not clear what she actually does other than show up to places and wear nice clothes. Yeah. But also even just um, the sweaters that she's wearing in the film are so tactile. There's something so yeah. kind of um, obsessed with physicality about the way Isaiah shoots the film mm. and and the limits of physicality I suppose which is lovely in itself and interesting in itself and also it's it's it feeds into the whole question of identity construction because the film is very much about who is Kristen Stewart's character who does she think she is she's she's not sure um, she had a twin who has recently died um, and we find out a certain way into the film that he died from the same congenital condition that she has um and they have this whole rather strange pact Mm. involving whichever of them dies first sending a message back within a certain length of time to settle the question of the reality of the afterlife or not do you think they'd have arranged what that message would take a little yeah. better? But, but also, so, one might not know the limitations of the uh, postal system until you yeah. get there. So she's constantly being shadowed by the idea of this other self, her twin, mm. and she's also her job is to shadow this celebrity and help her construct her public image. Yeah. And there are various scenes in which she's trying on the celebrity's clothes, and it's it's kind of lovely how much tension gets built into into that simple thing. Yeah. Because the celebrity is a horrible person. Who will be very unpleasant to her if she feels she, like she, yeah. if she finds yeah. out that these clothes have been worn by anyone other than herself? Yeah. Which, you know, big deal. But actually, it was a big deal. Yeah. I I found myself fully invested in the question of will she, will she notice? Yeah. Will Will Kira know that she she tried on those yeah. those shoes? My God, she tried on the shoes. She actually <laughs> did this. Has she installed a nanny cam in her? Yes, yeah. <laughs> entirely plausible. What I loved about the film, apart from anything else, was its ability to have me completely invested in questions like that mm-hmm. um, you're right an awful lot of it is the attention it pays to visual texture mm. and it's and there's steady cam work in that and the long follow takes yeah. and things yeah. like that yeah, as well yeah, yeah. Yeah. and to every moment that you're being given visual information all of it is relevant symbolically narratively there's things that you don't quite understand going on but that you can tell are significant it's a real puzzle box of a film i'd love to watch it again because i imagine you'd have a completely different take on it oh i think the so. second time you're you're also not really given any initial explanation of who the characters are yeah. that she meets and oh, so you're and kind of on the um we should also say it's here. it's not a film that makes sense it's a film that mm. quite deliberately presents you with a puzzle which is to some degree insoluble and there is a, there is a key scene in which something happens that I have discussed at length with one of my sons who went to the film at a separate screening and we agree that it's crucial to know what happened in the scene and that it's probably impossible to know although I want to see it again and see if I can get a better <laughs> sense of that I think I think I can think I know what scene you're talking about but yeah yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's not a film that one should describe yeah. even given yeah. how much we're yeah. giving away we've just tipped the surface of what's yeah, there you're not gonna yeah you're not going to should we talk a bit about um, the New Zealand side of the New Zealand International Film Festival? My take on it, I often don't get to as many local films as I'd like, and I tried to correct for that this year. 
but I also think that it was just a really darn good year for local film. Yeah, I didn't um, get to as many locals as I wanted to, but they were all good. I think. Should we start with the film that's in theaters right now? For the, for the people who won't listen to the whole thing, <laughs> <laughs> the least we can do is talk about um, Poye. Uh, Poye, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The story of our song. <laughs> yes. Lovely. Um, opening night, that was, uh, what a fantastic experience. Well, did you both see it at the opening night? Yeah, and that, that matters, because yeah. one of the things we talked about afterwards was how fantastic a viewing environment that was, yeah. and how hard it was to know. I mean, obviously, it's a great film, and I would love it if I saw it in any context, I think, but difficult to rave to someone about how great an experience that was without quite knowing how great it was going to be for them seeing it yeah without all the people in the film there on stage reenacting some of the most moving scenes from the you know. yeah. Yes. yeah 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 well so, so i've seen the film uh at a critic screening because again i was gone for the opening one and i so i've been really interested because i i like the film and i actually had a really powerful emotional reaction to the film more powerful than uh, I, did, I don't think I cried at any film at the festival until I got to Poye, which was not at all what I would have anticipated. <laughs> um, but I definitely found uh, the front half of it a lot less satisfying than the back half. I felt mm. like, um, and I think there were just some certain filmmaking obstacles that were quite difficult to overcome. There's a lot of characters at play, some of whom's roles aren't necessarily that important. Um but they're all little pieces of this puzzle. The main piece is this person who's gone, and because of the choice to tell it from the perspective of this one interview that was recorded however long ago and not use voiceover or any other tools, um, it was maybe two th- there's, there's, yeah. there's a bit of a rough kind of... some rough points in covering the first 40-something years of Dalvanius Prime's life prior to um, his writing of Poirier. Um, which, understandably, is what most people wanted to talk to him about. Um, And so I definitely felt... um, I felt like it was really sharply put together, and I felt like... And some of the on-screen graphics and stuff were beautiful. And I felt like, you know, sometimes I watch a film, and because I make a living as an editor, I'm like, I wish I could go back in and cut that differently. I didn't necessarily have that with this film, but I felt like it was just a tough challenge... Uh, to get in, particularly if, like me, you didn't grow up with Poirier under your skin, and you didn't that's grow up with any national sp- yeah. yeah, because that's the other way in which you were really, yeah. you're a really interesting viewer for this film because yeah. you didn't grow up with Poirier. And I remember to- I talked to Darren Bevan, yeah. Yeah. a friend of ours, straight after the screening, as um, someone who's um, from the UK and has been here for a bit of part ten years or what have you, um, but had no real sense of the song itself aside from when it came out in Boy. Um, yeah, I had I have sort of a I'm somewhere in between because I worked on a show Rock the Nation and it was oh. like top hundred moments or something in New Zealand pop mm. culture and so I cut a whole little segment on Poirier for that and mm. you right, know right, had right. had various oh, celebrities okay, so talking you, about you what it meant a, to yeah. them and so I heard a, you know you, as you do when you edit you hear the 15 seconds or so you've chopped in of the song far too many times because yeah. <laughs> you're playing it back and again and again and again. Um, so it, it certainly meant something to me and I always thought it was an interesting song, but I didn't know it, you know, like in my DNA and the way the Kiwis would. And I think that it's not going to have much of a life outside this country. I don't think that, um, if you don't live here, it's just kind of like, why am I watching a behind the scenes of music 
uh, it's a song that I don't really know. And, and that's, that's an interesting thing, again, uh, regarding the voiceover, because I think he yeah. could have chosen to make it as the film for export if he'd wanted to. Yeah. Um, it would have been a slightly perverse thing to do, because, you know, why should anyone outside New Zealand care? Well, actually, there are lots of reasons yeah. why they should care. It's an interesting sociological story, even if you have no investment here. But it's, it's not the first choice. And it's a beautiful... I mean, it's. I, I don't want to sound like... Because, obviously, I'm at the point where I'm not as invested in it as you guys and I don't um, well, I, I well, should, it sound like I'm, I'm down on it because I think definitely all Kiwis should see it and not in that kind of you'll see it if you know what's good for you way but the, because it really captures that kind of transient uh, and you talked about this I think some in your review Jacob this point where we still hadn't really embraced Maori culture into the mainstream and, mm. and the film does quite a great job of showing how dominant the long shadow of uh, English culture is mm. over the country and how something showing up out of left field with you know um, yeah. Maori lyrics is that was really nice so highlighted the with, square, the, with the, the with accordion the, duo with the repetitive um, back and forth between um, Taika Waititi and Stan Walker as two people on either side of that divide in terms of birth and Stan mm. obviously having released um, entire Te Reo Māori songs Oh, has he? Yeah, um, Aotearoa is okay. primarily his, um, I think, with a bunch of other recordings. Because I, w- I, I mean, I'm, I can't say that I listen to the radio very much, and so I don't really know what's super popular, but I don't know of how much influence the song has had, which is yeah. another thing I was wondering about. Well, see, that's one thing, like, I, I, I agree to a point that, yeah, I can see that why this film would struggle to travel, um, but I do wonder how it would travel in other indigenous communities, Overseas, hmm. I'm in my work. I'm, in, I'm true, yeah. related to a bunch of indigenous um, yep. library communities around the world, um, and Native American um, over the Sami tribes over in um, and um, Sweden and what have you. Um, yeah, so the, I'd, I'd be interested to see how those yeah. communities would um, respond to it. There's yeah. the sequence early on where Dalvanius, I think it's early on where Dalvanius is in Australia hmm. performing, and I forget who, but. Um, Someone he's dealing with basically says to him, "Look, mate, you're you're a Maori guy from New Zealand, and you're pretending to be African American. You're singing yeah. African American songs. Is, yeah. It's not your culture. Why don't you go home and figure out who you are and do your own stuff?" Yeah. Which um, and almost that bluntly, and that's yeah. what that's what he does. Yeah. Um, and I imagine that that is something that a lot of Indigenous people around the world would find interesting. Yeah, because it really yeah. was. Uh, as, as, as a um, young Maori person growing up, that was it. Really, was the first time that we'd seen anything in the mainstream pop culture. Uh, uh, there was plenty of Maori in my growing up, up at my grandparents um, at the homestead there on the Marae. But even like in Gizmo, I grew up. There was a lot of Te Reo Maori just chucked into everyday speech. At least where I was from, in my schools and right. family and stuff. Um, even though I'm not a native speaker, so like you know, fluent or anywhere near. Um, but there was like there was I was used to it, and then I moved to Invercargill, and it was cultural <laughs> um, wasteland for me. And I was like, "Wow, everyone is white, and culture is I, I don't know what's happening here. I don't relate to it. Um, it's cold, and <laughs> in and, so many ways, and, and nobody uses the language I'm used to hearing. And then the song came on a year after I moved, um, and I was like. It's on yeah, TV. There's, yeah. there's, there's, there's an entire song in Mali. It's kapahaka. You know, yeah, I grew yeah. up with that, and I was in a kapahaka club when I was a kid. But like, it's also breakdancing, yeah, which yeah, is fascinating. Dancing, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, it was yeah, fascinating. Yeah. And and the deconstruction of how Dalvanius purposefully 
engineered the song which he initially released as a kapaka song for his local um, Pātea Māori club, you know, um, performing, I, I don't know if, how many people outside of Māori circles know, there's competitions where people basically display local kapaka around the country every year, all the time. For, um, for non-Kiwis, um, you should probably say kapaka. Oh yeah, it's um, Māori performance. Yeah, traditional Māori so- song um, and dance performance, but it, th- there's specific cultural messages and times that you do it. It's not just like we have a song dance for entertainment. It's as part of meeting and greeting, welcoming when people come together, you everyone if, if you someone has a formal speech, everyone someone sings afterwards, but everyone sings together. Yeah. Um so it's it's all summoned into how we do things. Um yeah, so to see that happen on screen, you know, and in the mainstream and how hard he pushed to get that mixed in with pop culture was Yeah. Was, and I think that's what's uh, to to go from a non-indigenous perspective, what's I think inspiring about it is to have such a specific vision, especially in, I'm pretty sure it was his early 40s when all this happened, which is, you know, not Mm. at at the point where most people who thought about making it big have kind of said, okay, well, you know, I gave it a shot and we'll move on. I said, no, I'm going to pursue this vision that there's no real template for, that there's no um, thing I can go to the radio and say, oh yeah, well, this is just like that thing. And I'm going to push it as far as I can take it. And that, that was where the emotional payload of the film hit for me personally is just um to believe in something that is so strong and kind of seems good in a, in yeah. a, an old-fashioned moral sense of the word good as opposed to like good as in that's a good song and to pursue that vision and especially when we get to the end spoilers and you actually find out for the first time in your life i think regardless of whether you're from new zealand or not what the words to poye are <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole other wave of emotion that you realize Mm. it's actually a beautiful sentiment and beautifully written um, to the extent that you can determine these things in translation. Yeah, yeah, Mm. that was lovely. And there's a kind, there's a consonance, I think, between the willed optimism of Dalvanius in making all this happen and the way the story is told, because there's a bunch of points where you could have made it a much darker film, I think, Mm. and. It's a very happy film about mm. someone doing something really neat that was really hard and really unlikely and making it happen. N- kind of not focusing on all the ways in which New Zealand at the time was quite a nasty racist place and didn't give him a lot of help and actively kind of stood in his way in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, I went home and I looked up the video for some reason, because I guess I hadn't heard enough during the film. <laughs> and uh, and um, I found it under One Hit Wonders, yeah. you know, and that's yeah. kind yeah. of, you could easily tell that story of like this guy who had one song and then struggled the rest of his life and never really, um, you know, succeeded in replicating that hit and died. And, um, and this film is so not interested in casting that story in that way. And I yeah. don't know enough about that lacuna in his life to know how he felt about that intervening 17 years. And if he felt frustrated, he never managed to follow that up with another song. Yeah. Or if he actually felt like, you know, this is what I meant to do. Um, but it, yeah, it is a commendation to the film, I suppose, that well, it takes that route. I quite often would use the term um, selective storytelling as a negative with documentaries. That's mm. one of my things with documentaries is that I get really annoyed when things are edited to kind of fudge around aspects of a story in ways that are not acknowledged within the yeah. filmmaking. Mm, yeah. um, but in this case, I, I think you could 
you could fairly say that this film does that, but I think it does it for good reasons yeah. and in ways that are really emotionally powerful. Yeah, yeah. And, and, that, and that's the, the editing focus, is knowing what story you're trying to tell well, it's, and, and you, finding that. Did yeah. you read the Russell Bailey um, profile interview that he did with Teodoro Pakahi that came out the day, I think, that the film opened? I don't well, know if I read that. Speech, but, um, but, um, yeah, oh, you were there, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it was... Um, Basically, he um, he was interviewing Teodoro Pekahi and noticed that there was um, a poster with Delvanus's head on saying, Poye, story of our song. Well, I'm not sure it had the subtitle at that stage. Um, 2014, I think it was. <laughs> <laughs> or 2015. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so said, and, and it's quite noticeably, quite noticeable between both of us when I see that, that it's the, you know, it's approaching the latter half of 2016. Yeah. Um, and basically said that um, Teodoro Pekahi got to the end of the film, had finished it, and was ready to put it, was kind of ready to put it out, but, um, but was something, was he was uneasy about something, and a little bit unhappy, watched it again, and just thought, no, I'm, something needs to change, I can't do this. And he was basically, he'd done the narration himself, and he was telling the story, and then he felt like, his voice was getting in the way of, and I think he said it on stage as well that he felt like yeah, his voice was getting in, in the way yeah. of Delvanius's yeah. voice, and so that's when he went back to that Chris Bork. Chris Bork. Is it Chris Bork, the yeah. music? Yeah, yeah. Or, um, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. New Zealand, yeah. yeah. Chris Bork yeah. interview, and um, which had been given as kind of background by Radio New Zealand to use for the thing, and said actually let's let Delvanius tell his own story, um, and and I caught up with um he was doing the rounds at the um after party thing um, and was really nice um, so I caught up with Teodopa briefly and just said hey man that was great it was that song meant a lot to me when I was a kid and more than I knew and I didn't really you know I didn't really sort of connect mm-hmm. the dots with how much of a role Delvanius played in terms of Māori Renaissance in that role with that song yeah. um, and he said yeah this is and they, I think that plays into the editing he said to me yeah this is our song and it was like that's the subtitle to the film, but he was kind of saying, as Māori, this is our song. It's not yeah. like you say the the film is it's about the song, but it's actually about the way Delvanius impacted Māori for benefit of the country and for us. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What's your take on that from a Pākehā perspective? Do you feel like what kind of connection did you have to this none song? whatsoever? Um, to the extent that my experience of watching this, because I should I should clarify, I'm. I grew up not just in a Pākehā bubble, but in a classical music bubble. So <laughs> I did not watch or listen to RTR Countdown, which is where the song yep. debuted. I didn't listen to any of the radio stations where it was playing. And I was kind of, um, you could fairly say snobbish about it, I actively resisted the presence of popular music in my life. I didn't like it. I I listened to other stuff, and it was part of my self-definition. One of the ways in yep. which I put myself kind of aside from the aspects of New Zealand culture I didn't like mm-hmm. was that I listened to my music, not to your music. Um, so, um, one of the reasons the film hit me so hard, um, obviously I knew about the song, yeah. having heard it in Boy, and you know, hearing yeah. it, hearing it around the place o- over the years, mm-hmm. but I knew nothing mm-hmm. about the history of how it entered the New Zealand mainstream. Um, but um, I was a teenager when it came out, so I, I lived through that period, and I remember it very clearly. So that was my country, and I absolutely recognised it, and all right. the ways in which it was a ghastly country to be Maori, and and particularly to be a Maori singer trying to get your mm. Maori language song on New Zealand radio. I mean, my God, we were we were we were not a country that was open to that. So it was really yeah. it was yeah. really moving to be taken back to that. 
after all the social changes that have happened since mm. and to realise, oh, um, this isn't the song that changed everything, but it kind of is one of the pivot points when things didn't have to go a particular way mm. um, and someone decided to try and make a change. And as a result, you know, God knows, New Zealand has still got its problems, but I was I was there in the 80s and it's got a lot better. Yeah. And, and, and that song is part of the reason why. So I, I found that intensely moving. Great. Um, let's move from the opening night film to the centerpiece, nice. uh, which I've not seen, um, but it recently selected for the New York Film Festival. So mm. it's getting some international cachet as Alison McLean's adaptation. Uh, or directed adaptation of Eleanor Cadden's novel, The Rehearsal. Yeah. Um, and to say that it's gotten a mixed response, well, well it, it would just be accurate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she's understated. And, yes. and, and, I, and I'm, I think I, uh, the Panagraph Punch review was, would be categorized as probably the negative side of that response. And I think I'm sitting with two people who are on the positive side of that yeah. response. So. Um, yeah, Janet McAllister's review was one of the best negative responses I've seen. Yeah, it was very well written. And, yeah, and, I, and, and it paid a lot of attention to yeah. the book and to the way the film adapts the book, and yeah. th- which is precisely what I loved about it, because right. I, I thought that book could not be adapted well, and I was expecting them to do a whole bunch of things, including, God help us, a voiceover narration. Um, very quickly, you've read the book, David? Yes. And you haven't read the no, book, No, I've not read the book, Okay. Though. I've read the book and I completely shared your um, skepticism, but I, yeah. I haven't had a chance to see the film yet. So now, There are ways in which the film is really, really not the book. And that's something that Janet talks about very well, I think. Mm. And I'm in this slightly difficult position now that I've thought about the film a lot and then had a lot of arguments with people about it and then read Janet's review and a bunch of other things and watched 30 odd other films since so the film is now somewhat smudged in my memory together with all of the things Mm -hmm. that I've said about it and read about it Um, so I kind of I I have this really strong desire to go point by point through your review Janet if you're listening to this (laughs) and and rebut Um, but I don't actually feel that I'm in a position to I need to watch the film again (laughs) and probably read the book again and I really really want to so maybe we can host an adjunct podcast if uh, if Janet's interested but I I think pretty much anyone who's read the book would agree that it's what you might call a transformative adaptation. It mm. looks at the book and kind of and makes a film that you could argue recreates something of the experience of reading the book. It's certainly not a close adaptation of right. the book. Mm. So that will annoy some people. I thought it was a really good choice and really well done. And I, again, like Personal Shopper, I was just in it beat by beat. Right. I found it a really alive and interesting film brilliantly written really well acted I just really enjoyed it it had so much it had so much spirit uh, and it was so visually alive Um, but even as I say this I'm hearing all of the things that people like Janet and like our friend Steve and Mm. a bunch of other people have said against it Mm. and thinking gosh I really I really need to go and watch this film again probably twice and just very quickly where do you stand with Alison McLean in general and where do you think this fits in with her Work? Have you seen Crusher? Jesus is no. Son? I don't know her at all. I was. Okay. I became aware of her pretty much throughout of the mist. Or no, when this film turned up. I mean, oh, okay. as I understand, she is someone who's kind of an evidence of how hard it is to make a film in New Zealand because she's she hasn't been a strong presence 
as far as I'm aware, during the time that I've really been paying attention to film again, um, just personal parenthetical note, I kind of stopped paying attention to film for a while when my kids were born. And there's, there's seven to ten years where there's an awful lot that I just missed. And she, she was in there. Well, Jesus' son was from either the late 90s or 2000. So this is her first yeah. uh, feature yeah. film in 17 years. About 17 so years. I, I don't think it's just you that's um, yeah. um, noticed her absence. Yeah, so I can't speak to that. Jacob, can you? No, not particularly. I like. Um, I I don't think I've seen Jesus the Sun actually. Um, okay. And yeah, like you said, I'm, I was sort of mostly introduced to her early New Zealand-based stuff from uh, Out of the Mist, which is Tim Wong's New Zealand yeah. uh, history Survey essay, which is on, online yeah. and worth watching. We miss you, Tim. Yeah. Uh, but but at least we got your liner notes this year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so what, what was your take on the rehearsal, and have your views shifted in light of hearing? the criticisms or are you kind of still sturdy in your approach well i mean as someone who hasn't read the book and so i'm just approaching the film as a raw piece of cinema um i it was something that i really enjoyed um as david said i thought it was well acted aside from right at the very first scene felt a little bit clunky to me james rolleston traveling on the bus yeah it might have been on the bus i think towards auckland where he's going to enroll and he he meets this girl who's obviously a little bit younger than him they kind of they start talking, they kind of hit it off. That's going to matter. Yeah. That first bus scene, I think, between him and Ella Edwards, is it? Yes, yeah. yes it is. Um, didn't quite gel for me, but very quickly after that, everything did. And I thought her performance was fantastic. Yeah, same, um, same. And, I mean, James Rolleston's pretty fantastic. I've, I've been in, into him through through his films recently, since boy kind of thing. I hope he's okay. Um, same, yeah. same. Yeah. Um, oh, oh, and... The career that he's had. I yeah. mean, the, the, there are not that many New Zealand films made in any given year, and he's managed to be yeah, in so he's, many. He's had, what, four iconic roles now? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah which is, is pretty incredible. Is he 20 yet? No, no, <laughs> I don't think so. Um, so, so, yeah, so yeah. I, I experienced it as uh, a drama that was engaging. Um, it was... Uh, it was nicely stylized. Like, it wasn't, um, wasn't a, sort of a realistic... Kind of drudge match. It was obviously this kind of fabricated reality of a of a drama school, with bits that you did recognise. Like there was a character that came in, and um, he was like one of those slightly more kind of well-to-do um, white chaps enrolled in drama school, and was like, "Hello, ahoy, ahoy," and, and <laughs> reminded me of someone that I actually knew. Yeah, yeah, it was just a story that was I thought was fantastically um, put together. Um, the the kind of dramatic tension around. Um, who are we? How do we represent ourselves to other people? To what to, to what degree is performance um, happening? Given that it's a movie about people learning to perform um, and needing to perform to be accepted by the adults in the film, um, and then ha- how much um, of what they're giving as characters is truth and how much is fabricated is it all fabricated is it a blend is it primarily truth but then they just allow themselves to be manipulated by adults for what they think is um their where they want to end up in life you know that yeah. kind of thing and and some great sequences of movement like um the some of the, I, I heard some people complain about i wish there was more rehearsal um seeing it's called rehearsal but i thought there was plenty of kind of rehearsal um and like the the kind of the these drama group sequences where they're doing um, kind of faux tennis movements, um, I, I found quite engaging to watch. I thought they were very cool, very, very, 
screen. Yeah, is it like a dance cool. film at points in that uh, sense? Yeah. Is it, um, well, uh, it's, not, not, it's not a dance film. It's a drama group that's using dance as one of its means of communicating. Um, and it's a highly self-aware film in yeah. the sense that many of its scenes are performative yeah. and people are either performing for each other or they're performing for an audience Brilliant. or occasionally they're performing for the camera yeah. but, and is, that, are, is that the artificiality that you think like some people might be yes. struggling with yes I do it? but I thought it was its greatest strength because that is very much what the book does it's yeah. constantly making you pay attention to its language and on any given page in the book you're not necessarily sure what the status of what you're reading is yeah. right. um, whether it's treated as realism or in some way some kind of text within the world of the book or some kind of performative stunt by Eleanor Catton for your enjoyment. But it's mm. how you read the book has to be very active and engaged and mm. the film is somewhat similar. There's, I was just flicking, if you heard pages rustling just then, I was flicking through my viewing notes to try and remind myself of what I actually thought while watching it because it has been, it's been a while subjectively. And there was just one scene that didn't work for me mm. and it was... One of the major subplots involves a sex scandal involving a tennis coach yep. and one of his students. And the coach turns up um, in a TV news story. And this is something that often strikes me with New Zealand film. I have no good explanation for it. It's odd. When our, when our fiction films try to have scenes of New Zealand television news, specifically news, it always feels as though they've got it wrong. What did you feel about Hunt for the Wilder People? That is a comedy, and I loved it to bits. <laughs> <laughs> the use of John Campbell in yes, that film yeah, is one yeah. of its great delights. Yeah. And yeah, no, that's no problems there. But, okay. but I remember thinking while watching Hunt for the Wilder People, oh, um, it's, it's a television news person, and he's not being misused. Yeah. Um, but that's, they got an actual television news person rather than hiring someone to act one, and somehow... Our actors always seem to get the register slightly wrong. The writing is always slightly wrong. That was the one moment in the rehearsal where I thought, okay, this thing that they're doing in almost every scene of creating some kind of performance, mm. um, but in a different mode from scene to scene so that you're constantly having to reevaluate. Here it feels flat and wrong. Interesting. And mostly I wasn't responding that way. Mostly I was thinking, gosh, this is so clever. So do you think, I mean... In terms of going out to the world, you know, you have, like, they've definitely pitched it as, like, urban high school, you know, they've used the still with them with the graffiti in the back, and James Rolleston out front. Do you think that imputed audience is going to respond to this film, or that, do you think they're going to run screaming when they see it? I never know. I'm one of the worst people in the world at figuring out how audiences in general are going to respond, and how teenage audiences are going to respond, and I have so many arguments with people about this it's actually we could do a whole podcast on this question alone um, <laughs> I, we won't right now yeah i think that was one of the things that um janet and her review um mentioned that she quite i think it was her maybe it was someone else some someone at least possibly janet mentioned that um, one of the things they really did like was that it reminded them of their flatting days at university um and so possibly there'll be a connection there for um for people in that space um yeah I it does make me that. it does make me think back to clouds of Sils maria where i wrote i read an academics kind of review of it where she said she responded as a 40 year old mid 40 year old woman to and related to Juliet Lenoche, but then she deals with these students all the time who kind of treat her in a similar way and realizing how many people at that age if they watched it would be 
seeing Kristen Stewart as the primary character and viewing everything through her gaze and looking at this weird old person and how they're... And so I wonder if there's those levels to this film as well where you can... Yeah, there probably are. Yeah. That's that's really interesting. I would like to talk to some younger people who've... Actually, does anyone know what um, James, the listeners James, thought of it? Not offhand. No, I mean, he's the, he's the youngest, I got youngest oh, okay. film right <laughs> um, I think we should talk about the... Um, I'm going to call it the closing night film, just so we can have an opening uh, centerpiece oh, yeah. closing night film that are all from New Zealand, um, even though uh, it wasn't billed as such. But uh, it was for, for me. For my money, on an unknown beach uh, is in my top five for the festival. Wow! Uh, and I was not expecting that. I um, it's directed by Adam Luxton and Summer Agnew, who did a film called Minganui back in 2000. Oh, yes. Five that was not very much seen, but um, has had its admirers, and then. Adam did a film with Jeremy Dumble in 2011 or 12, whatever year Red House was, called uh, We Feel Fine, that I saw some short excerpts of, and it seemed like this shambling thing on K-Road that seemed kind of like slacker-ish, um, and I, like slacker the Linklater movie, yeah. um, rambling sort of thing, and I didn't really um, make a point to catch up with it any more than that, and so... I had my guard down a bit for it, and um, I knew that it was a tripartite documentary that focused on Bruce Russell of the Dead Sea, who are a famous, long-standing Christchurch-based noise group, and he's a noise performer himself, and has had this label called Corpus Hermeticum that puts out these CDs that have like 16-page tracks about um, Neoplatonism and things, and strange grids on them, and you put them on, and they sound (laughs) And um, and one struggles to make the connection, um, and then uh, and it then, was not an obvious film. So and then and so there's a third of that, and then a third of uh, this oceanographer who's studying damage to the um, ocean floor by trawlers, and a third about a poet who's undergoing hypnotherapy to deal with <laughs> repressed trauma. And um, gosh, that is uh... it, 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 <laughs> it was it was like they actively set out. To come up with the film that no matter what synopsis you wrote for it would sound the weirdest. <laughs> weirdest and pretentious and all those sorts of things come yeah. out. And yet the film is anything. Well, I, I mean, some people may feel that it's pretentious. I don't. Um, I feel like what was really striking about it, though, was just the incredible confidence of every choice in the film. Yes. And... Uh, making what I would say is a web of intuitive connections that between and also the three. visual strength yeah. the, the shot framing is so enormously good and so many of the individual shots are simultaneously unexpected and beautiful yeah. um, it's such a beautiful film to look at that it just conveys so much confidence within the first few minutes I mean I went in there thinking experimental New Zealand documentary on the last night I'm exhausted this is probably a mistake but what the heck nothing this is, this to, is nothing actually, to lose. after you couldn't make it through radio dreams I'll have uh, to yeah I know I know I re- this was I thought this was the film that would kill me frankly and then right. I, was, I was looking to Paul Verhoeven to bring me back <laughs> and it, I will get to Paul Verhoeven but I completely loved it and it really quite took me by surprise um, we were discussing radio dream earlier and that was a lovely film but it was almost too much for me. It was too dry. It was too slow. This was really, you would have to say it was a pretty slow film and it took a lot of concentration, but somehow it just kept making me want to give the concentration that it needed. I felt 
Um, and the movie very explicitly does this near the end, but I thought about a lot about trance and ritual during it and how yes. um, it is. Uh, and then once you're in that wavelength and that you're just hypnotized and that's, and I um, got drafted on very short notice to do a Q&A for the film afterwards and not having seen it in advance. I'd read, um, James Gates did an interview with Adam Luxton for Panagraph, so I'd read that and I'd seen a few minutes of it on a screener and then said, no, I don't want to watch anymore on a screener. I want to experience it in the room. But I wasn't really prepared for it to be quite as good as it wound up being in quite this kind of You must have felt brain so lucky. To, I mean, I thought it was such a brave thing to go in cold and do a Q&A literally seconds after your first viewing ended. But to be able to do it with such a sense of enthusiasm, to, to stand up thinking... I've just seen one of my favorite films of this festival. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 the thing is, I knew enough about it going in that I knew like that I could throw together a Q&A and, and I don't have any... I, I mean, I've done that sort of thing, not specifically in front of audiences, but for writing about things enough that it's like, we're going to do an interview where we talk about what I'm interested in. And, <laughs> and you know, we don't have to talk about the parts of your film that or music or whatever that I really didn't like. And thankfully that wasn't an issue there. And I'd, I'd done a Q&A with um, Heath Cousins, the director of Doglegs, a few days prior, which I'd liked a lot, but I'd watched the film in advance and I made notes on that and I was quite ready for that. And I had a few questions prepared for this, but um, no, I was actually just a bit of, I, I actually just wanted to be like, can we just press pause and let me digest that for five minutes yeah. <laughs> uh, more than being excited about being able to do a good Q&A, to be honest. Well, it's interesting because with both this and Personal Shopper, and I think one or two other films, um, there were key things about them that I did not understand, still don't understand. We'll go back and watch again and hope to understand, but it doesn't feel like it matters. Whereas, for example... With The Dragon Arrives, mm. I felt quite strongly that if at the end of that film I hadn't been able to say, in a certain minimal sense, all of this does join up, it does, it makes, right. it makes a certain lunatic sense, that would have been a massive problem with the film because the film is giving you this puzzle and the puzzle needs to be soluble. Whereas with this, they were kind of, it was more that they were proposing a mystery and asking you to think about it. Well, it's also the sense of a unified aesthetic experience. Yeah. Um, and that, I mean, somebody asked me if uh, you could just as easily experience it in a gallery. And I said, no, I don't think so, because I think actually the structure of it is in so much you mean part of a ritual. No, no like as, as, a, as in a visual, like, you know, if you, if you go over to Auckland Art Gallery, like, and, and instead of a Lisa Ray Hanna piece on an unknown beach is playing on a wall in there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and, you know, moment to moment, yeah, there'd be interesting bits to it. Oh, but I no, feel like if you no, just no, no. sort of walked in, I feel like it's designed for a cinema. I feel like it's designed for... Um, it has a structure. Have, yeah. yeah, it's, for the, it's, it's, for not, that. it's, it's not just a sequence of beautiful moments. That you hop in or out of and, yeah. and try to construct, yeah. I really hope... It sounds like they're just kind of got done with the film and haven't really thought about much about its life. And I hope that it has some life overseas and that it gets I, discovered because it... It really seems like a film yeah. that ought to do the, the festival circuit. I have yeah. no idea what kind of art house distribution options there are internationally, but there are so many yeah. international film festivals that I think people would really like to see it at. Yeah, well, I, I thought of a festival like Locarno, which unfortunately mm. is on right now, but <laughs> um, so they won't be hitting that. But um, that, yeah, very art house 
festivals would really key into that and that it could have if the right people see it. I mean, it's the way I felt about The Red House and The Ground We Won, and those are probably the only three films in the last five years that I've, or however long it's been, that I felt that strongly about. So I'd really love to see it succeed. So if you're, by some strange chance, an international programmer listening to this, <laughs> get in touch with me and I'll see what I can do to uh, pass you on to uh, Adam and Summer and uh, do that. Let's... Worth saying also, just parenthetically, that it got quite a good house. The, yeah, the screening that, that I went really to, there lovely. were a lot of people. And I, oh, great. I went to an earlier experimental documentary, New Zealand, at this festival. Was Apple that Pie, Apple Pie? Yeah. Which I thought was really good. Not as good as this. And it had some, there were definitely some problematic things about it. But I'm very, very glad that I saw it. And it had some indelible moments. Hardly anybody showed up. And I, yeah. I somewhat expected that would be the case with this as well. Yeah. Apparently it did terribly in Christchurch. Or I, I was... Um, my review of it. Um, Apple Pie did, or this one? Uh, both. Um, really? Apple, Apple Pie... The, because we should say On an Unknown Beach is partly about Christchurch. Yeah. Uh, well, it was an afternoon screening uh, that my review <laughs> on Pantograph went live, and Adam messaged me to say, oh, that's... I'm, it's nice to get something positive. I'm in a completely empty Hoyt cinema and about to um, be here for a Q&A for... Uh, it was at 3.45 in the afternoon, so maybe the evening evening one did better Maybe. It's so but I know the apple pie screening in Christchurch our, my friend or my internet friend uh, Aaron went to and there were two people there and she was one of them Auckland Auckland must, must have got at least a dozen people together but not a whole lot more yeah it's it's one of the things I think is really hard about the festival I'm really glad they added the extra week to fill in some films but it's just there's so much that goes on at the same time and that's one reason I often skip over yeah. um, local films is because I feel like you know do you do you go see the local film which might be programmed because like somebody's a friend of a friend or they programmed and they feel they have to or do you go see the Sierra Nevada uh, you know or yeah. the thing that's on an international art house scale that yeah. is um, you know reputed over the world to be amazing and will never come back um, or do you go see you know, something about some noise artist in Christchurch. Um, I mean, those two weren't directly competing, but, you know, that's the kind of calculus yeah. that happens yeah. all the time, and it's so challenging, and, and, you know, and probably quite good films get decimated just yeah. by, you know, Dog Legs was one that, you know, there were only 40 people in the audience, and I would have thought that it would have done so much better, but perhaps because of whatever else was on that night, or... The calculus of figuring out one's schedule from the program is really complicated, mm. and mm. this is something we haven't talked much about, but it's definitely something that I talk about every year going into the festival. Everybody has their method for coming up with a film festival schedule that will actually get them to the films that they want to see, given their budget and their and their time budget. Yeah. And it, everyone has a different algorithm. It's enormously complicated, and typically you're not playing two things off against each other. There will be three things that you want to see on yeah. in any given time slot, and making any change to any given time yeah. slot. Yeah, it has a domino effect. effect yeah. That's, yeah. 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 yeah, and that's, um, I do wonder sometimes, it's like, would, would we be better off if there was like a separate avant, you know, a slow film festival or a, a local film festival that focused on those uh, films that have no um, market life outside of uh, a festival circuit, but that might not quite get the cut through to get somebody into the room and you know I don't and I don't want to spend a lot of time second guessing the work that Bill and everyone does because no. you know for one thing I've seen their faces at the end of the festival <laughs> and, and they give everything to yeah. it but um 
but they, yeah, it is like kind of, it is the only horse in town unless you self-distribute, which is happening more, you know? I mean, that's, yeah. Yeah. My, my film wound up self-distributing because we got rejected by the New Zealand Film Festival twice. And we probably got attention that we might not have gotten in the film festival context, you know? I mean, if we were put up against whatever the yeah. big film was that year and, you know, there's been some years where there's been like six dramas in there yeah. and, you know, it's like, um, and whereas, we, and so that, that stuff's all a bit unknowable, but it's great to see it. I, in my opinion, is something like on an unknown beach or even the, um, the spectral visions, uh, short film program, which I made it to before that, that featured, you know, Gavin Hipkins and Alex Backhouse mm. and, um, you know, other, uh, Gabriel White and so on. Martin Sedgerton and uh, oh, I forgot the fifth, um, but you know that was a full house at the Academy. And, oh, great! You know, and that's um, and to be able to put that on and have that kind of yeah. out, out support for local art is really great. And, and that's really know, good to hear. But there's always just going to be things that get left behind mm-hmm. because you can't endorse 130 things to everybody in complete detail and have them stick. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Um, let's talk about, um, since it's in cinemas now, uh, as well, uh, Green Room. Ah, yes. Ah. So I loved it. Did you, I saw it with you actually. I liked it. I came out afterwards and slowly figured out that for a bunch of people, including you, Graham Tuckett has a five star review, um, in the Dominion Post at the moment. Yep. Um, for quite a few people, it was like one of the best films they saw this year. Whereas I just had a really good time. It was the right film for me to see on the night. We went to it at the festival program launch where there were three options. Mm. And it was definitely the best of those options for me. I I thought it was really good. It's a very, very interestingly tightly edited film to the extent that there are moments where you cut so quickly from one bit of information to the next that if you're not paying attention, things just fly by you. Mm. Um, I, I came out thinking, you know, I'd probably understand that story slightly better if I watched it one more time. I've seen it a second time. I saw oh, it on really? Monday. How and, was that? Um, it's great, and it does fill in a lot of the gaps, and it also uh, helps you key into some of the lesser characters. It, yeah, I could I could um, kind of feel that that information was all there. Yeah. yeah, it's... It is all there, but because you're trying to work out what's important, there's the confrontation when they first get to the club and one of the guys in the band says something to one guy and he's like don't talk about her and you know and that yeah. turns out to be um, a character yeah. that there's a lot more stuff to but you don't yeah. right. at, at yeah. the time you don't have the time to go back and process because Jeremy Sonia is so expert at keeping you on your toes yeah. and having yeah. this, this rhythm where and, and it's a very different experience the second time because the first time you're just completely surprised at you know, it's it's not this sort of linear. We're going to pick off a character every ten minutes, yeah. and it's going to be uh, they say it's going to be all of a sudden. Oh wait, that happened. Yeah, yeah. Or, I was, I was okay, very surprised. This, we, is, this is. We should yeah. probably say slightly what the film is. Okay, yes. so um, okay, I, I saw it. I loved it. Um, wasn't in my top five, but um, fantastic. I, for me, it um, worked better than Blue Ruin, Sonia's first film, but which I second, which, film. which uh, second film, sorry, which I really liked. Um, yeah, so it's uh, following a punk band who are on a sort of a shoestring budget tour of the northwest. Northwest, yeah, um, and they uh, they go to a place and a gig gets canned, and so the guy they're staying with tees them up with another gig in a in a place on the way to where they're going. Um, 
they turn up to the place, but he says it's a, it's a metal crowd rather than a strictly a punk crowd, which is what we were talking about before, um, about how in certain places the population is so small and the, the genre is so niche that um, you end up sharing crowds for various genres of music, and they sometimes work, sometimes don't. Yeah. Um, so they turn up to this. <laughs> this um, would fall under dope. <laughs> yeah, they, they turn up to a, what a, what a, appears to be kind of a vaguely white supremacist end of metal clubs, um, and then things go south from there. Yeah, they get they get caught up in a situation, and then it turns into a. Ah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's a locker room thriller, yeah. and it's but there's some beautiful yeah. moments. There's a. Uh, like for someone like you, you, Dag in particular is way more connected to the music side of things than I am. But the the way Sonia cuts some things and, and creates tone is fantastic. Like the colouring in it was beautiful. I love the, the greens and the greys and the, the dark yeah. and white sort of um, contrast. But and occasionally the red. But <laughs> there's, there's a scene where we're full on. Um, where um, I can't remember if it's if it's the band themselves are playing their punk gig or if it's a metal band playing afterwards. But where You've got this thrashing mosh pit, and then suddenly it goes into slow mode. Other music plays, and it's beautiful. It's so beautifully transitioned into and out of, and uh, yeah, it's just some glorious filmmaking in that film. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the Ain't Right second song. Oh, the first song is the Dead Kennedys cover, and then which I won't spoil what song they're covering. But um, and and I think it's very well judged in terms of um, it'll work very much for a punk audience. But even if you think that punk is as much of an atrocity on music as David probably does, um, no, or no, at least no. used to, then um, you'll... You misunderstand, I think, of all popular music as an atrocity, so... <laughs> yeah, not I, yeah, no, I have no anti-punk prejudice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, insofar as it's part of, part of uh, non-classical music. Yeah. <laughs> therefore terrible. But um, it... Uh, for, the, for that audience, it still quite judges the amount of music cleverly, and, yeah. and then has that transcendent slow motion crowd yeah. moment and I, I think is is a much easier way of taking people into the visceral experience yeah. of something like that in a way that they might be able to relate to yeah, yeah. Um, as this ballet of bodies and mm. um, energy rather than just being like I don't like this music this sucks yeah, yeah. Um, which is uh, one possible mm. reaction well, for a lot of people, I guess um, Patrick Stewart will be cast against type, um, yeah. which, is, which was magnificent. And and having read interviews um, with um, Jeremy Sonia after having watched, um, sort of saying that um, that Patrick Stewart kind of cast himself to a degree, like because <laughs> someone asked him, "Did you write the part for him?" and he was like, "Oh no, we're related to a similar production outfit." And someone showed him Blue Ruin, and he really loved it. So he asked he to see. Contacted me and asked yeah, if, yeah. I, if he could then, play a white and, and supremacist. Then like, and then he was like, "Well, okay." But, and but he, he Jeremy <laughs> Sonia was saying that's that, great. That, I didn't know that he'd initiated that. Yeah, and, and wow. but he was sort of saying that working him with, with him was really different. He didn't know whether to expect prima donna behavior or someone who had high expectations. But he said he got there. He worked really hard um, and he had a really interesting sort of thing. He he didn't want too much kind of. Um, Backstory and, and him coming to his character, and they were, and he tried some things. Go okay, how, how about this? And they were like, Holy crap! <laughs> Who knew you would be so good in this role? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think that's one of the the things when you look at the cast list. I thought yeah. like that seems like quite a disruptive yeah. presence to have. And yeah, but it's, it's not it's not celebrity casting in any no, sense at all. No, no and that's and it's interesting because in some ways he almost. Um, undersells it to the point that yeah. uh, the performance that blew me away and was the one 
that um, I heard some people after the second screening the next morning at work talking about was the um, young uh, person who works at the club who uh, earns his laces that night, who's played by Mickey yeah, Blair, yeah, yeah. the baby yeah, face yeah. Um, thing, who is the lead in Blue Ruin yeah. and uh, is incredible in this yeah. film. It just nails this mix of being this young puppy who's eager to please and um, being just competent enough, but not quite competent enough. Yeah. Yeah. And um, nail, Nails was a really tricky role that could have been comic relief yeah. or could have been just disappeared. You know, and there and are the some, film there does are some characters such who slightly a good disappear. job in teaching you what things like earn his laces yeah. means. Mm. And just all this incidental, what you would call world building information yeah. Yeah. That's, that's just conveyed so cleanly. Yeah. Um, my experience of the film... I can kind of sum up by describing a very early moment that isn't really germane to the plot at all, but early on in the film, um, after they've had this failed gig, I, I think it's after, they they go back to this guy they've to the to the flat of this guy they've met. Yeah. They're listening to music together. Um, someone chooses a record to put on. Um, it's it's a vinyl disc, so you see the needle go down. And as the needle is going down, some part of me is thinking, we listen to music for a bit now, relax, process. Instant clean cut to the needle is at the end, end of the record. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's the seamless beginning cut, it's the end, and you have to take in what happens next. So that completely threw me. Um, it was beautifully done, very efficient. Uh, sums up the way that the story just moves from beat to beat to beat in ways that surprise you, mm. um, are efficient, uh, keep you alert, but simultaneously that quality threw me slightly off from time to time and stopped That's me understanding the story as much as I wanted to, which probably does mean that I would watch it again and it might well end up becoming a beloved thriller in a few years' mm. time. But yeah. for for someone with my level of kind of my capacity to take in visual information quickly wasn't quite up to what the film was wanting. But I think, I, I mean, I hear what you're saying, and I think there's a lot to offer on a second viewing and some of that. But I think you don't need that to follow the bones of the story. Yeah, that's true. I, I, I did. I, I, I don't think that but you I come think out for, for someone like you who knows who knows more about that world and also might have been understanding more of those individual editing moments than I yeah. was. Um, I think you came out just on a complete high, whereas I came out thinking that was fun. So those are, those are two very different experiences. Well, yeah, well, I wrote about it for Panagraph, so I, I went into a lot of detail on this. But basically, it's like coming from that punk world, and it's very much a place of these sort of transient, conditional families and relationships. They're not usually the relationships that rational people would choose, <laughs> um, but that that evolve and I and I feel like that's a lot of what the film's about and that's uh, the the biggest knock on the film that I've generally heard is that it, there's nothing more on its mind than just being bloodthirsty or that it's violence porn and I should say it's definitely very brutal at points and definitely not for the yeah. squeamish but I didn't feel that it was that at the expense of the reality of the characters and this is up probably the only way it'll be compared to Tony Erdman but um, that that even though it has this structural superficiality to you know uh, like the way that Tony Erdman relates to Curb Your Enthusiasm could be the way that Green Room relates to I don't know Assault on Precinct 13 or any sort of lockdown yeah. thriller um, 
there's something about the character dynamics that separates it. And for me, the um, the emphasis on both sides, not just in the punk world, but in the neo-Nazi world, and even with um, dogs. Um, again, if you have a thing against dog violence, that could be an issue. Um, oh my goodness, uh, yes. Give, giving or receiving. <laughs> and, the, um, and the relationship between the what? dog owner and his dogs is actually, that's something that cut through on a second viewing that I didn't get on the first. It's such it's a that sweet sense thing. Of, family, of family and what it means. Everybody in the film is cut off in one way or another from their birth family. Uh, you, I mean, you don't know anything about their lives, but you know that they've either got in a van together or they moved to the backwoods of Oregon. Um, and either way, they're not, like, clearly not where they grew up, feeling a well-bonded, connected sense to their who they were. They've found belonging here. I mean, the Imogen Poots character talks at one point about how she fell into it because she was attacked by somebody and fell in with these white supremacists yeah. because of that. And so those those themes of family and belonging really resonated for me in a way that was probably more foregrounded by having, you know, been on tours and stayed at these shitty houses. And thankfully, we never played any skinhead clubs. But, uh, <laughs> you know, so we, we all have our... Uh, my, my, my days in the Wellington Youth Orchestra did not, did not feature any such scenes either. Strangely <laughs> enough, there was this very lovely moment where the, uh, the neo-Nazi dog owner is required to sacrifice a dog for plot reasons that I won't go into. And he says, I think, to Patrick Stewart's character... I'd take it as a personal favour if he died with meat in his teeth. By which he means, I I really hope that you let him die in the act of killing someone. Yeah. Um, please have my dog savaging someone to death as as he dies. That yeah. would that would be nice. Which is the most hideous thing to say, and yet mm. it was very touching. It, yeah. man, it managed to convey the fact that this man loves his dog and is really sad that the dog is going to die, and that did reach me. Interesting note, post re, uh, post viewing, uh, reading, um, read dogs, um, someone, again in an interview that I read, um, parent, someone commented on the fact that these, there's these um, pit bulls that are used as kind of attack vehicles in the, in the film, um, you know, kind of related to neo-Nazi-ish groups. Um, and then, but actually kind of towards the end, you you get a quite a nice scene, kind of, of, of a dog, um, <laughs> where, where it's in a very yeah. not not such a negative light. Yeah, um, somewhat similar. Jeremy Sonia commented that um, it was a purposeful thing for him. His um, a, he's a dog lover, but a couple of years ago, before producing the film, his daughter was um, quite savagely attacked by a dog um, that left him traumatized. He said she kind of got over it, but he never quite has, and so he worked that into the film as a way. Of oh, that's really with. interesting. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Huh. yeah I mean, I, I feel like I feel like genre films in general like don't get um the credit that they're often due for being personal and i feel often like that people use that genre lens as ways of working in things from their life that are not as obvious and intuitive as when uh you know someone writes a movie about being broken up with or whatever yeah um did either of you happen to see a perfect day no i can't even say the director's name fernando leon de aranoa um, it's, I'm not familiar with the director either. Okay, it's a it's a war film set in the Balkans in the 90s. Oh, okay. And I only mention it because it was it was the genre film that I loved as much as you both loved. Oh, was it the, um, the Tim Robbins? The, Tim Robbins, Benicio del Toro. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. A, a group of aid workers. Yeah. 
just having this really, really terrible day. It, re- it reminded me strangely of um, MASH, the TV series, oh, okay. not, not the Altman movie. Um, it, it had that similar, that mix of kind of weirdly idealistic nihilism. Right. <laughs> uh, and it was very, very nicely done. And, and it's, it's another one of the films that I imagine will be opening in theatres. And I would, without, I'm the only one who's seen it, so we need not go into it at any length. But I would just say in passing, do see it if you can. Mm. Great. Let's take a quick break and then um, we've been agreeing too much so we can start talking about Camera Person. Oh, awesome. <laughs> 